Please be seated. As you take your seat, you can open with me in your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves in the middle of the chapter this morning in verses 13 through 17. Paul has been laboring to communicate to us that Abraham was not justified by any good work that he did. He explains that in verses 1 through 8. Last time we were together, he made it clear that Abraham was not justified by circumcision or by any other sacramental sign and seal of the day. Today he goes a step further. Last time we were together, Paul made it clear that the Jewish rite of circumcision cannot make anyone righteous before a holy God. Why? Simply because Abraham was declared righteous no less than 14 years before circumcision was ever given. Here in verses 13 through 15, Paul goes beyond that and speaks of the entire law of God. What the Jews called the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which were extremely important to a conscientious Jew. It's almost as if the Jews were saying, Paul, you've taken away good works, you've taken away circumcision, now the law too? If there was one thing that a conscientious Jew thought he could boast in would be the Torah, the law of God. And Paul's going to demonstrate to us that if circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's justification by God, then the law had even less to do with it. As he continues to take away anything that might be meritorious on the part of his Jewish counterparts, Paul offers us answers to questions. I want to answer two questions this morning. That'll be the structure of the sermon. The first question is this, can the law of God make me righteous? Can the Ten Commandments declare me righteous if I obey them and do my very best? You see that in verses 13 through 15. And then secondly, the question is, why is faith so important to God? Why is faith so important to God? And we'll answer that question in verses 16 and 17. So, with a brief outline of the message. Join me in prayer, if you would, and let's ask God to bless our time together and understanding of His Word. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only, and we pray that by Your Holy Spirit You would speak to our hearts of eternal things that you would lift up and exalt your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, through all of it. Bless us, Lord, to these ends. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, the question is, can the law of God make me righteous or make one righteous before God? And Paul offers the answer to that question, absolutely not. And he gives us three reasons, I believe, why the law cannot make us righteous before God. You 
Remember, the law came many, many years after circumcision. And later on, circumcision was basically organized under the entire umbrella of the law of God. Nevertheless, the law was not present at that time. But Paul offers three reasons why the law of God cannot make a person righteous. Number one, Abraham was declared righteous before the law was given. God's promise to Abraham was not through or based on the law of God, but the righteousness of faith. And Abraham did not have the law of God, and Paul points this out in Galatians 3.17, where he tells us the law was given 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. So Abraham was declared righteous before the law was given. Number two, reliance on the law, it eliminates faith and nullifies God's promises. Look at verse 14 with me. God's promise to Abraham was unconditional. There was no condition of obedience to the law. And if, long after the promise was given, it had been made conditional on obedience to the law, which was not mentioned in the original terms of the promise, the whole basis of the promise would have been nullified. So we could sum it up by saying this, God's law, the Ten Commandments, could never invalidate or restrict the scope of God's promise. If God made a promise way back in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and his dealings with Abraham, then the law of God would not interfere with those promises. They would not invalidate those promises. If anything, it would enhance the promises. And so reliance on the law eliminates faith and nullifies God's promise. And we all know that God is not pleased without faith. Hebrews 11.6 makes that clear. Well, thirdly, look at verse 15. The third reason why the law cannot make us righteous before God is because the law brings about wrath. It says that explicitly in verse 15. The law, keep in mind, was a blessing from God to his people. But the people of God disobeyed God's law repeatedly. And God's law had penalties for those who disobeyed. Sin brings about the wrath of God. If you want to know who your God truly is, read your Bibles, especially in the Old Testament. You see a God who hates sin, a God who takes it seriously. And Paul shows us that sin brings about his wrath. He also shows us that the concept of law, on one hand, and promise, on the other, belong to different categories. They are incompatible. If God makes a promise to us, as he did to Abraham, that promise is based on his word. It is not based on anything conditional, that we somehow muster up the energy to obey the Ten Commandments. Law language, you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language, meaning God says, I will, demands our faith. And what God said to Abraham was not, obey this law and I will bless you. But he said, I will bless you, believe my promise. The law turns sin into transgression, a deliberate trespass. And transgression provokes God's wrath. You'll notice at the end of that verse, verse 15, he says, For the law brings about wrath, but there, where there is no law, there also is no violation. What does he mean by that? 
Well, the law has a tendency to crystallize and make even more concrete sinful conduct. There was always sin before God gave his law. We see that in Cain and Abel. We see it all the way through the book of Genesis into the book of Exodus. But where there is no law, there can be no violation, and therefore no wrath. God intended his law to be a blessing to his covenant people, but while the Jews possessed the law, they did not obey the law. So in conclusion, the answer to our question is, can the law of God make one righteous? No. What the law does is expose sin. It makes it clearer and clearer the deep, deep need that we have. I believe that the law of nature is on every heart of every human being. We know because of our conscience what we should do and often don't do it. What the law does is it crystallizes and it makes clear a violation. And when a violation is noted, that brings about God's wrath. God gave his law for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons was to demonstrate our need. To demonstrate our need. And so people who go through life saying, I hope I know the Lord. I hope I end up in heaven. Uh, How do you know if you're going? I obey the law. I try my best every day. I was talking to a young woman via the internet a few days ago. I've always believed in my heart that I truly do love people and I truly try my best. And I said, I agree with that 100%. The only problem is, when you compare yourself to other people, your peers, you may look pretty good. But they are not the standard. The standard is God's perfect righteousness. And nobody stands up to that standard. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so quickly, Paul makes it clear here, the law of God cannot make someone righteous. But notice, secondly, the question is, why is faith so important to God? And we see that in verses 16 and 17. I want to spend the bulk of our time together here. Why is faith so important to to God? Well, for two reasons. One, believing by faith demonstrates God's grace and mercy. Look at verse 16 with me. Believing by faith demonstrates God's grace and mercy. The promise of God rests upon His grace. It does not rest upon any kind of human merit. That is to say, any good work that we do. Or a sacrament, like circumcision in that day or obedience to the law. And what God provides by His free grace can be appropriated only by human beings through faith. What, on the contrary, is earned by works, not faith, is bestowed as a matter of merit, not grace. And ladies and gentlemen, we need God's grace primarily due to the gravity of our sin. Sin, among other things, brings distortion to our minds. Sin affects the mind. And what it does is it makes it so that we don't see God or our neighbors 
or ourselves clearly. And the Lord God Almighty has to invade those distortions. He has to remove the lack of clarity. Again, we human beings don't appear so bad when we compare ourselves to others in society. Comparing ourselves with other sinners, we could say, I look pretty good. But whenever we look at the true and living God, and the only way that we'll ever see him is if he pulls the curtain back and allows us to see him as he really is. Then we see the gravity of our sin. That happened in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah, the famous vision? He went into uh, the temple, and uh, his vision of God in the temple uh, led him to see the greatness of this God and his holiness. The seraphim were there, these strange-looking beings or birds, and they would cover uh, with two of their hands, two of their six hands, they would cover their eyes, with two they would cover their feet, and with two they would fly. And the covering of the eyes and the covering of the feet were designated to show the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah saw all of this and he heard all of this, you remember his words, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah was stricken with the gravity of his sin. Together with the holiness of God. And when the Lord God Almighty reveals to you and to me the gravity of our sin because of His holiness, then we begin to say of ourselves, I'm undone. There's something wrong with me. And I am in need of something that I cannot furnish on my own. And that's why Paul is laboring here. Believing by faith demonstrates not the merit of my obedience, but the grace and the mercy of God. He's so far beyond us that He has to condescend to us. He has to invade our lives. He has to shake us up and make us aware of how dark our hearts are and how holy He is. See, God blessed Isaiah that day by allowing him to see God's holiness which in turn led Isaiah to see the gravity of his sinfulness. And ladies and gentlemen, that's one of the greatest gifts that God Almighty can give you. A true sense of the gulf that is fixed between my sin and his holiness. Often we think about things to pray for. I need a new job. I need to know where to go to school. I need a spouse. One of the most important things you can pray for, according to God's will, is to give you a keen awareness of His holiness and your sinfulness. Because then and only then will you recognize the beauty of the love of God in His grace and mercy to condescend to me as a sinner. Fast forward to the New Testament. It wasn't just Isaiah. The Apostle Peter also came in contact with this He had this kind of experience. You remember in Luke chapter 5 when 
Jesus approached Peter and his companions and he said, let's go out for a catch after they've been out all night and caught nothing. And Peter says, Master, we've been out all night. We haven't had a catch. But nevertheless, if you say so, we'll go out. And they caught so many fish with Jesus in the boat that the boat began to sink. And they got back to shore. And Peter, just like Isaiah, had a gift of being able to acknowledge this holy man of God, Jesus Christ. As Isaiah did in the temple, now on the lakeside, Peter said, Go away from me, Master, for I am a sinful man. You see, he recognized the great gulf between himself and a holy God. And whenever you recognize there's absolutely nothing I can do to make myself righteous before God. There is no amount of law-keeping, no amount of obeying the commandments that will ever deal with the pollution deep down in my soul. God planned for that. The law was weak in the sense that we couldn't keep it, and we can't keep it. And so God Himself came to earth in the form of a man, the Lord Jesus, to keep that law perfectly. And then to die on a cross in order to pay the penalty for all of our infractions against the law. That's grace. That's mercy. Why is faith important to God? Because it highlights His grace and His mercy. And that is the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't involve you or me trying to merit a place before God. We can't do it. But when the Lord makes clear to us how far short we fall, and we begin to be awakened spiritually, not only to our sin, but God's love in providing a Savior, now you begin to see clearly how much God loves you and how much He cares. Because he sin makes us have a jaundiced view of God. It also gives us a jaundiced view of our neighbor. Because Paul goes on to talk about this grace. He says, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are the, of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul argues so vigorously in this chapter that the Jews had a high view of themselves, but they were blind in connection to the gravity of their sin. They were also blind in connection to God's universal love. God didn't just love Gentiles. He loved those who are of the faith of Abraham. They thought they had exclusive right to God, excluding everybody else. The whole book of Jonah is written that way. It makes the Jews look so self-righteous and so uncaring about their neighbor, the Ninevites in that case. But the tremendous grace of God is shown whenever we see our sin and God's holiness. And you know what? When God's grace and mercy dawns on you, it drives you to be grateful and thankful, and it also drives you to exercise that grace and mercy to other people. In this case, the Gentiles. The tremendous grace of God and is further emphasized because the Gentiles are included. Abraham's descendants don't just mean law-keeping Jews, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. 
And so why is faith important to God? Number one, believing by faith demonstrates the grace and the mercy of God. When you come to this table this morning and you eat and drink, I hope you don't do it in a haphazard manner. I hope you come recognizing the gravity of your sin and the blood of Christ that was spilt in order to pay for all of your sins and to clothe you with His righteousness. So believing by faith demonstrates the grace and the mercy of God. And then look at verse 17, the second reason. Believing by faith demonstrates the greatness and the glory of God. And this is really lovely in verse 17. Paul makes it clear in this verse that believing by faith demonstrates not only the grace and the mercy of God, but also the greatness and the glory of God. First, Paul reminds us of the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 5. I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. We read that passage this morning. And secondly, Paul makes it clear that Abraham received the promise of God in the very presence of God. Look what Paul says there. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. That is a direct quotation from Genesis 17. But he adds, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. Now you'll notice in verse 1 of Genesis 17 that we read this morning, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me, and be blameless. The words in the Hebrew Bible mean literally walk face to face. Face to face. It was as if God was saying, I know that you're 99 years old. I know that there are many things that seem impossible to a human being, but I am the Lord your God. And you are going to walk with me in intimacy and closeness. And there will be a passion there that any other relationship is unequal to. Walk before me and live. Walk before me and be honest with yourself. Walk before me and see the gravity of your sin and the tremendous love I have for you. Open your eyes and see eternal things. Paul makes it clear that Abraham received the promise of God in the very presence of God. Can you imagine what that's like? God was saying to Abraham, walk before me face to face. Let there be no barrier between you and me. And you take me at my word. And watch what happens in your life with that type of belief and obedience. And if that weren't enough, I want you to notice that Paul adds, he did this in the presence of God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In other words, Paul gives evidence of God's greatness and power. God didn't just tell Abraham, walk before me face to face and live. He has evidence in his corner. He is the one who gives life to the dead, which is resurrection. And he calls into being that which does not exist. That's creation. And Paul is saying, this is the God who makes the promise that by faith, when you take him at his word, you will stand holy and faultless before him. God's greatness and power. It's no wonder that the Lord asked us to praise him and to worship him. 
because our view of him so often is jaundiced. And like Psalm 51 says of the Lord to his people, you thought I was just like you. Don't make that mistake. Nothing baffles human beings more than nothingness and death. And if you look around in our society in the 21st century, a lot of people are hung up on these things. They're not ready to die. They don't want to die. They don't even want to talk about dying. You go to the average funeral home today, it looks like a Starbucks. You know? We don't want to talk about death. It's scary. And we certainly don't want to talk about nothingness. How could a God bring things out of nothing into existence? The anxiety of the 21st century existentialist is demonstrated supremely in their dread of the abyss of nothingness. And death is the one event over which, in the end, we have no control and from which we cannot escape. Woody Allen epitomizes for many people this inability to cope with the prospect of death. In the New Yorker magazine in 1990, he was quoted as saying, quote, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> People say they're not afraid to die, but they certainly don't want to be there when it happens. But you see, nothingness and death are no problem to God. On the contrary, it is out of nothing that he created the universe. And I want to remind you, he didn't do so as some contractor. He simply spoke. By divine fiat, he created all things. That's how powerful this God is. And this same God raised people from the dead over and over again in the Old Testament. But finally and supremely, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, was raised from the grave. As the prophet Jeremiah said to the Lord in prayer, You have made the world by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Because the God who creates is the God who redeems. In the book of Ephesians, Paul asked the Ephesians in prayer that they might, quote, know God's incomparable great power, which he has displayed in Christ when he raised him from the dead. No wonder the Bible says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Why is faith important? Because it demonstrates not only the grace and the mercy of God, but also the greatness and the glory of God. And the Bible makes it clear God will not give His glory to another. I invite you this morning, have you read about Jesus dealing with the Israelites? And over and over again, he claimed to be who he was. But there's no greater picture than in John 8 where he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, no ending and no beginning, is the only one that can give you grace and mercy because of his blood spilt for your sins. He's the only one that can demonstrate to you a part of the greatness and the glory of God, all that you can stand. When you look to him, as the Bible says in Hebrews 12, you receive eternal life, forgiveness of your sins. And you begin an exploration to the greatness and the glory of this God who loves you and sent his one and only son to die for you, to save you, 
from your sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your character. We thank you for your attributes. We thank you for your grace and mercy and for your greatness and glory. Give us a picture of that this morning, Lord. Help us to believe by faith that we might trust you and that we might walk with you like Abraham, face to face without any obstruction. Give us the grace to do that today, Lord. And we thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ who allows us to become very close and intimate with you by trusting him and his death on our behalf. Lord, bless us now as we move toward your table in faith and hope because of your great love for us. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.